had a friend when we lived in Louisiana who worked for NASA and worked for the space shuttle program. His job was to figure out the amount of power and energy that was needed for the space shuttle and the launches and, and how much uh, thrust the different engines put out. And uh, he was a, a, just a brilliant, brilliant young man. He was also, at times, our youth leader. And I remember him telling this story of uh, a young woman that had come to the youth group, and there was a bit of arrogance to this, this young lady. And they were talking about some of the, the, the struggles and the conflicts that existed between Scripture and, and evolution and some of the things that are taught in terms of the fact whether or not God created and all of that. And my friend was teaching about the fact that God created. And as he was doing so, this young woman kept bringing up this fact or that fact. And my friend, with much ease and much um, gentleness, would say back, well, yeah, but there's a problem here and there's a problem here and there's a problem here. And finally, this young lady, just in frustration, says to him, so who says that what you're saying is right. He looked at her and he said, well, I do. And you can imagine the next question. What? You think you're some kind of rocket scientist? And I love the response. Yeah, I am. And at that moment, there was a change in the attitude. Because as my friend said to this young lady, yes, I am a rocket scientist. By the way, that's exactly what I do. And it's what, you know, takes my time. It's where I've studied. It's what I've researched. I, I'm into to the mechanics. I'm also into astrophysics. And, and he just kind of went on to, to explain to this young lady about what he did and where he found what he found and why he believed what he believed. At that moment, the discussion changed because he had the authority, the knowledge to speak up in a way that probably most of us don't. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and even listening to my children grow up, we often used to play the who says game. Somebody would say something, someone would declare something, and out of our mouths would come, well, who says? And if it was, well, mom said, especially if it was the kids, that often settled it. Sometimes we could say, God says. That would settle it. Well, as we are in this journey with Jesus, the, 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 the path, the the traveling that takes Jesus from Jerusalem and as we've seen him making his way in. And in Luke's account, you remember that all the way through in Luke, up until Luke chapter 19 and verse 44, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He hasn't arrived yet. And Jesus is presenting himself as the legitimate king the son of David, the one who is the Messiah, the one that was promised and is coming. And the question became, as Luke is writing, what are you going to do with that? 
How are you going to respond? And you'll remember that the city of Jerusalem basically thumbed their nose at Jesus and said, we don't count you as significant at all. They, they didn't do the welcoming that would have been expected. And so Luke asked, leaves us with the question, well, how would you have responded? How do you respond to the fact that Jesus is Lord? But as you come to the passage that Dave was reading this morning in that section in Luke, there's a little bit of a shift Because now they have rejected Jesus in an official way. And Jesus begins to confront them. And in Luke, there's this constant contrast between one group and the other group. Next week, we're going to look at the difference between Judas and the other disciples. Then we're going to move into those that would seek to be his followers and those that would seek to crucify him. And we'll see those who mocked him on the cross and those who recognized him on the cross. And Luke is in this process of saying, which group are you in? Which side do you choose? Well, this morning, as he is now in Jerusalem, Luke picks up the account of Jesus in Jerusalem and specifically, as you turn there to Luke chapter 19 and verse 45, we find him in the temple. And Jesus is going to address a very significant issue in our lives and in the lives of the nation of Israel, and that is the issue of worship. And what I have discovered is if you question somebody's worship, you better have the authority to do so. If you begin to say to somebody, you know, I'm concerned about how you're praying they're going to ask the question, who says? Or if, I ask the, or if I begin to say to somebody, you know, I'm concerned about the ways that you're responding to the gospel or responding in, in singing or responding in this, the question becomes, who says? Who says? And what Jesus does as he comes into the temple is he confronts Israel, the nation, and says, let's take a look at your worship because we got some problems. As I was reading this passage and thinking about studying it and this week in the process of thinking it through, I wondered what would happen if Jesus walked in the back door? What would happen if he walked into the midst of our time of worship? Are there things that he would confront us about? Are there ways that he would turn over tables? Are there ways that he would confront us directly concerning the things we're doing? And that's what I want us to ask. That's what I want us to be thinking about. How do I worship God? How do I worship him on Sunday? How do I worship him on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? Do I worship God in a way that seeks to please him? Or is my primary focus 
what pleases me. As we come into this section, as we begin to look at what Luke is doing here in his message, he wants us to know that authentic worship prioritizes God's purpose, God's reason for gathering together, God's reason for reading his word, God's reason for why we pray, God's reason for why we live our lives. It's not about what I want. Yesterday, Cindy, I'd come out of the bedroom and Cindy was in the kitchen and she had Pandora, one of those on, and it was playing. The music was coming through. I said, honey, what kind of music is that? And she said, it's bluegrass worship. Now, I don't particularly like that kind of music. And I said, I think that's an oxymoron. I'm not sure you can put those two together. My priority, my preference, my like is not to do bluegrass worship. And I know I've just lowered myself in the eyes of many of you. If I had my choice between bluegrass worship and I had my choice between classical Bach or, or, you know, Handel or one of those, I would choose the classical. But if I had my choice between worshiping God and not worshiping God, my response would be bring on the bluegrass. Because my preference is less important than my need and hopefully my desire to worship God. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, are you willing to conform to what God wants? Or is it about what you want and your preferences and your desire and your comfort and your entertainment? That's what Luke will confront us with through the words of Jesus. Now he does that by understanding that the central focus of our lives is proper worship to God. There are many things that are important in our lives, but not many that are much more important than how we worship God. It's what we are created for. The very reason why we are created is to bring, to bring praise and glory and honor and worship and adoration and thanks and all that is a part of coming before God and saying, God, you are great. And we see it all through our lives. If you, are, if you know the shorter catechism and the question, what is the chief end of man? The first part of that is to glorify God and then to enjoy him, to find the source of your joy in God forever. Now, as Jesus is coming and he's coming here and we read in in chapter 9 and verse 45, then he entered the temple area We need to understand a little bit about the temple. We need to understand a little little bit about its importance in the life of a Jewish individual, in the life of a first century follower of God. The temple was the center of their lives because it was the center of their worship. It was an object lesson. 
and what they were to be about. It was an object lesson in the vileness of sin and the holiness of God. It was an object lesson in what it, what it took in order for God to forgive us. It was an object lesson of that which was holy and that which was profane. It was an object lesson about how I approach God. It was an object lesson about the separation between God and man and the holy of holies and the holy place and the curtain in between and how I needed to be cleansed to come before God and My life was centered around the temple and its worship. At Passover, I went to Jerusalem to be at the temple. At feasts, I went to Jerusalem to be at the temple. And it was a central part of the life, the worship life of a first century follower of God. Now things have changed. We're no longer in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. In the Old Covenant, the central aspect of worship was the temple. In the New Covenant, the central aspect of our worship is our relationships. But its value, how we are to look at it and view it, has not changed. In fact, when you think about the temple and its its splendor, that it showed before these Jewish people just how important worship was. It was a magnificent structure. It was made of polished marble that when you walked up to it, you would just see the, the light shining off of it. It had plates of gold all around it, and constantly there was the smoke of the sacrifices going up, especially around Passover. And there was the, the incense that filled the courtyard, and there was the music that was sung. And you were just overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the building, which was only a minute, almost imperceptible demonstration of the awesomeness of God. This is what the temple probably looked like, something like this. And you don't get a sense of scale, but the temple mound, where the temple existed, where it sat, that area within those walls that you see is 35 acres. Now, we're not farmers, so we probably don't get acres. So let me try this. It's 25 football fields jammed into that area. A massive, massive place. You would see it from miles away. In fact, as Jesus and the disciples, some of the other gospels talk about, as they came to the top of the Mount of Olives and they looked out over Jerusalem, that which caught your eye, it's kind of like the PP&L in Allentown but much grander. The first thing that catches your eye is this magnificent structure. This is how important God is to us that we would create this. Constantly, there was sacrifice. And the whole whole structure was kind of divided into several sections. This massive area out here was known as the court of the Gentiles. People who weren't Jewish could go into that area. You could pass through that area and that was okay. But then this area, there was a warning sign at the gate that said anyone that enters this area that is not Jewish would be killed. 
That was known as the court of the women. Then as you got a little bit closer in this area, was known as the court of the Israelis, or the court of Israel. And then this was the temple that was divided between the holy place and the holy of holies, where in Solomon's day, the Ark of the Covenant existed. Magnificent structure. Jesus says we need to have a right attitude about the central part that worship plays in our lives. And so what Jesus confronts is he focuses on the misuse of the temple in worship. And you know the story. You know how Jesus went in and he, and he drove out those that were selling and making money inside the, the court of the women, that really big area. But there may be some things you don't realize First of all, we don't realize that what they were doing in of itself was not bad. What they were doing was making available to those that came to worship the, the resources that they needed in order to do proper worship. When you came in from the villages in Nazareth and of Nazareth or the villages of Galilee, or you came in from the dysphoria, you came in from other parts of the world, and you came to Jerusalem in order to worship him, you needed a proper kind of animal. You needed an unblemished lamb. You needed an unblemished, if you were big, sacrifice ox. You needed an unblemished um, dove. And so it had to be perfect. But if I was traveling all that distance, it, my animal might break its leg. It, it might pick up a disease. And so what they would do is they would sell those animals. And instead of bringing the animal along with you, you'd bring the money along in order that when you got there, there would be people who would sell you the, an unblemished lamb or an unblemished dove or whatever you might need. And there's nothing wrong with that. For a long time, it was done and everyone was okay with it. The other problem was that when you came to the temple and you paid your temple tax, you had to use a particular kind of coin. Only that coin would be accepted. And so you had to transfer your Roman money, your Greek money, your, your whatever money into this one particular coin. And so there would be those that would sell you that coin and they would exchange your money for that coin. But something happened around 30 AD, right before this time, just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Caiaphas made a change. Instead of selling all of that outside the Temple Mount, he moved it inside the Temple Mount. And the reason why? So that he could control the prophets. And suddenly, the prophets, the amount you paid, kept going up and up and up. And it was no longer about worship. It was about profiteering. It was about making a buck. It was about taking advantage of those that were in need. And Jesus came and would have nothing to do with it. Nothing. 
And so as you read through the passage, the one thing that we know as you read through Matthew and as you read through Mark and John in the earlier event, I think there was actually two cleansings. But you know there, when you picture the cleansing of the temple, what do you picture? My guess is you picture Jesus turning over the tables and having the lash and driving them out. And that's right, because that's what Matthew and Mark focus on, and that's what happened. But you know what's so interesting about Luke? Luke doesn't mention it. Notice what happens as you're reading there in Luke chapter 19, and beginning in verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Do you see any tables turned over? No. Do you see any whips or scourges to kind of drive them out? No. See, there's contradictions in the Bible. No. It's a difference of focus. This morning when I had Dave read the passage, I chose three particular passages that we're going to look at in a two-chapter two area. It's, it's too big for us to deal with. And so I chose certain parts of it to focus on in order to make the point that Luke makes here. That's all that Luke does here. The reason why he doesn't mention the, the scourging, the innocent, doesn't mention the tables turned over, is not because he didn't know it. We know he know, knew it. Because we understand he had Mark. You can see him borrowing from Mark at other places. But as he's trying to make his point, it isn't the physical that's important. In fact, where, where Luke makes his point is not in the fact that Jesus comes in and physically confronts them physically turns over the temples. He has a different point. He wants us to look somewhere else so that we get the full picture of what's going on here. And so pick up something that Luke does. I want you to notice there in verse 46. Actually, verse 45. It says, Then he entered the temple area and... If you have the NIV, what's the next word? Began. Started to. It isn't a once and done thing. Luke says there's a process going on here. There's something taking place that Jesus is doing that began as he went into the temple, but the focus is not on the turning over the tables. It is on the fact that he began to talk about, to, to, to speak to. And in verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 46, it says, it is written. And Jesus begins this process of teaching. And what Luke wants us to understand is Jesus didn't only try to cleanse the temple through turning over the tables and driving out the sellers. He also had teaching. He also had some didactic aspects to what he did, didactic meaning teaching. And so in the next chapter, as you begin chapter 20 in verse 1, it says, and it came to pass in the King James. The NIV doesn't translate it. But it's the idea of this is a continuation of what Jesus did. Jesus is teaching us about what worship is to be about. It isn't just the turning over the tables. I don't think Jesus would necessarily turn over any tables in our presence. I don't think he'd have a problem with the information table. I don't think he'd have a problem with the what's happening table. But there is teaching. There is thinking. There is attitude. 
that Jesus says we need to deal with in our worship. And so Luke's focus is not on the physicality. Matthew and Mark focus on that, and that's fine. Luke's focus is on the exhortation. And when you come to the exhortation, the teaching is aimed right at my heart and at your heart. And declares we need to have a right attitude, a right understanding of what worship is all about. Even if we aren't exchanging money, even if we aren't selling lambs and selling oxen and selling doves, we need to look at our heart. And so in chapter 20 and in chapter 21, over and over again, Jesus teaches them about the proper attitude of worship. Now, Luke summarizes it. He summarizes it there by a simple little quote. He says, this is what Jesus was teaching. My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, again, that doesn't strike us because we, we're not like the Pharisees and Sadducees who had whole sections of the Old Testament memorized and knew their messianic prophecies and knew what, what Jesus, I mean, what the Old Testament taught. But when those scribes and those Pharisees and those Jewish people heard those two phrases, heard the phrase, my house will be a house of prayer, their thought would have been, ah, Isaiah. And when they heard, you have made it into a den of robbers, they thought, ah, Jeremiah. It summarizes all that Jesus is teaching there. And he uses these two prophetic discourses to say, here's where the problem is. The first part of that is Isaiah chapter 56. And it comes from verses 6 through 8, where the prophet Isaiah is coming before the people and say, this is what worship ought to look like. This is what worship ought to be. This is the kind of attitude you ought to have as you come before God and as he's in that temple at the time of that first century. He's saying to the Jewish leaders, you've missed it. You've missed it so badly that you're allowing people to make profit on the very temple mound. They would have been thinking of Isaiah 56 where Isaiah declares, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to worship him, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant, that's what worship is about. Not how big a lamb I bring, not how often I bring it, not whether or not I sell or make a profit. It's about my relationship with God. And all of those, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. That's what I long for it to be. And the question becomes, what does God long for our worship to be? 
What does he want it to be? What does he want it to look like? What pleases him? Not what meets my preferences. Not what makes me comfortable. Not what requires the least amount of commitment from me. Jesus said this is to be a house of prayer. And all that follows as he's teaching is a declaration of that fact. But the other is a warning. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 9 through 11 is a warning. It's a warning of those that had chosen to use the temple as a talisman, as a good luck charm. See, I go to the temple. See, I do my sacrifices. See, therefore, I'm safe no matter what. Doesn't matter how I live as long as I go to the temple. Israel, no matter how we live, no matter what we do, it doesn't matter as long as we have the temple. Jeremiah says, no. It isn't just going to the temple. It's a life that consistently demonstrates a worship of God. And so he warns them, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, the false gods, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Have I lived in such a way all week in terms of my entertainment, in terms of how I do my business, in terms of how I'm involved in my relationships, in terms of all of those things, and now I come on a Sunday morning and saying, oh, now I'm okay. God must be pleased. No, he's not. Has this house which bears my name kind of bound of robbers to you? I've been watching. How is it that in the New Testament where our relationships with one another and our relationship with God is the place of worship that we can come at times come here and believe that a few choruses and a message and whatever can make everything right with God. Jesus says, that's not right. Let's take a look at our worship. Let's take a look of our attitudes as we come together. Let's take a look at how we've worshipped God throughout the week. Let's take a look at our attitude about having our lives bring praise and glory and pleasure to God. Because that's what worship is all about. Now, the first thing that happens when you are reading through this and Luke summarizes what Jesus is saying, it goes on to say every day he was teaching at the temple with the chief priests and the teachers of law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him but they could not find a way. And so as you continue to read down, they come to him and they basically say to him, who says? Chapter 20, the very beginning, who gave you the authority to say this? Who 
do you think you are? Some kind of religious giant? See, as they begin to deal with worship, what Jesus is going to say is that it is the word of God that is the final authority. Not your preferences, not your desires, not your comfort, not what you want, but what God has declared in his word. And so Jesus comes, and when they challenge him concerning his authority about worship, who says? Who do you think you are? We don't have time this morning. And, and in looking at the process of Jesus in Jerusalem to Olivet, we don't have time in the weeks that we have. But there's a challenge that comes in the next several sections. Jesus deals with the confrontation concerning his authority. By what authority do you do this? And he says to them, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Then they come and say, okay, we can't answer that question. But we're going to challenge you theologically. Let's see if you know your stuff. Jesus shuts them up. And then finally, Jesus comes and says, you want to know what my authority is? And his answer is this. God's word is declared to be the final arbiter of our worship begins by saying that authority is found in God's written word. As they came to him and challenged his understanding of the Old Testament, why does the Old Testament say this? What about this theological thing? What about that theological thing? Who do you say that you are? One of the things that Jesus does is he goes back to the word of God and says the word of God says this. The word of God declares this. So Jesus is saying, the authority to say that the worship here you are doing is a violation of God. His answer is based on God's word. And you see that all the way through. One of the things that the elders are doing right now is we want to be certain that our worship reflects what God would have. And so we've been working through a, a book that is a theology, a, a biblical theology of worship. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and goes all the way through to Revelation chapter 21 and says, here's what the Bible teaches. Beloved, we need to know what Scripture says about worship. Do you know Scripture doesn't say anything about what type of music we use? Do you know Scripture doesn't say anything about what type of preaching or what instruments or how warm it needs to be in the, in the auditorium or whether we call it an auditorium or sanctuary, even though I have personal convictions about that. But it does say what attitude we need to have. It does say if I have something against a brother or sister in Christ, I need to go deal with that. It does say that, that my attitude and my relationships can hinder my worship with God and my prayers. The word has much to say about that. But there's another word that you find here. And that is that authority is found in the living word. Jesus ends this by saying, I have a question for you. David, when he was thinking about the Messiah, 
said to him, my Lord. Why did David do that? And what Jesus is saying there is simply this. You know who I am. I am the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who is the son of David, the one who is the son of God, the one who is your Messiah. And I have the authority to tell you how to worship. You see, in the Old Testament, the authority rested on those books of Moses and their interpretation through the the prophets and through the history of Israel. But in the New Testament, the focus and the authority of our worship is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the focus of all we do. The question is not, does it make me comfortable? Does it meet my preferences? That's not the question. The question is, is my worship a clear and honest and full representation of who Christ is? Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read it tonight during our communion time, when he says to them that because of the ways you are worshiping, because some leave the the gatherings of the meal gluttonously over, over full and some leave it starving, some leave drunk and there's all kinds of, of excess going on. How does this represent Christ? He says, as a result, some are sick and some even sleep, die. Their failure to represent Christ in the ways they sought to worship him was a travesty, a violation of God, not a worship of God. Beloved, when we come together and we we gossip, or we come together and we grumble and complain, or we come together and ostracize some and, and, and forget to reach out, when we're involved in those kinds of things, we are not representing the central figure of all of our worship. The presence of Christ in us individually and in us corporately. Authentic worship is expressed through humility. Not grandeur, not fanciness, not elegant windows and and all those things, they're, they're okay. As long as they don't become the focus. The focus is our humility before one another in God. I love the New Century version. It's written on a third grade level so I can understand it. And in the New Century version, by the way, it's a great version for your children and for you. But it says there, as it quotes Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when you do things, don't let it be selfishness or pride. Don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. Instead, be humbled and give more honor to others than to yourself. Don't be interested only in your own life. 
but also interested in the lives of others. There's a quote I came on from, I'm sorry, find here, from Tim Keller. I think it's on the next slide. Yeah. Where he basically says humility is not thinking about, not thinking less of myself and more about others. He says, humility is about thinking about myself less often. Thinking about others more often. Beloved, when we came to worship this morning, where was your focus? Was it, what am I going to get out of the service? Was it about how excited am I going to be? About how thrilled am I going to be? How entertained am I going to be? Or was it about, I come here in order to find a way to minister to others, to encourage others, to hold up others, to seek to praise and honor and glorify God? Or is it about me? As Jesus is dealing with it, the, the two stories he uses is, first he says humility and worship involves forgetting our standing before others, not worrying about what others are thinking, not worrying about how am I going to look before others. As Jesus is teaching there and he comes to the end of, of Luke chapter 20, he talks about their attitude and he says, while all the people were listening Jesus said to his disciples, by the way, Luke starts this section and ends that section with that phrase. The idea that, and he was teaching, and he was teaching, that's the focus. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in their flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the banquet. You see, their worship is all about how they look. About themselves. About their own promotion, their own comfort, their own whatever it is. They could care less about others. I, you know I love the site Babylon Bee. If you're not familiar with it, it's a satirical kind of Christian thing. And they do these sort of fake stories. And they're just, sometimes they are so pointed and exposing. And one of them had... Uh, a headline, uh, mega church platform collapses under the weight of the ego of, you know, whatever. Too often, that's what it's about. Do I look good? What are people going to think about me? Jesus says, that's not what worship's about. Humility worship forgets me. I'm concerned about others and about God. Humility and worship involves a life lived with consistent concern for others. It's not just what I do here, but do I live that throughout the week so that my worship, when I come here, becomes a reflection of, of all that I am in, in the Lord. And he goes on to say that there are those that devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers, but there's no humility in them. We're running out of time, but I, I read an article this week. It, it just troubled me. It dealt with slavery, and it dealt with 
how slaves were, were treated in terms of their masters. Many of their masters would not let them hear the gospel whatsoever because they were afraid of what it might do in their hearts and their ideas about freedom and, and their own value before God and things like that. But some of the slave owners would allow their slaves to, to have worship service. Sometimes the masters would even lead them. And there were two counts given. One was of a master who was leading the service and these long, lengthy prayers. And of course, his preaching was on slaves obey your master. And right down the road was the screams of a young girl tied to a post waiting to be beaten to death by that same master after the service was over. Or there was the story about the master who was doing the same thing, preaching and praying and all the rest. And later that afternoon, beat his slave for being five minutes late after leaving the service. Now those are extremes. But I'm afraid we tend to do the same kinds of things. We, we live lives that are self-centered and, and selfish and, and looking only to ourselves. And we do that all week long. And then we come here and we wonder, why is it so hard to worship? Why don't I get anything out of the music? Why don't I get anything out of the reading of the scriptures and the message? Worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. It's how we live our lives. And so we talk about our mission as living a life of worship. So that when we come together here tonight, we can share about what God is doing in our lives. The last thing that Jesus teaches there, and he uses a woman who gives two little pennies. It is one one-hundredth of a day's labor that she puts in. Humility and worship involves a willing sacrifice of our resources and ourselves to God. Beloved, worship cost us something. We had to get up this morning. We had to drive in. We have to sit in a hot or cold church. You know, we have to listen to a, you know, old guy standing up front droning on. Is that our frustration? Or do we come with the humility that says, God, I do this in order to worship, to use my resources to celebrate you. You see, too often I think our worship is more about convenience than sacrifice. It amazes me. And listen, I want to be so very careful here. When I grew up, if you weren't at church, man, you were judged. We used to have, some of the churches had the, the book that went through the pew and you had to sign your name and they would keep record of just how many times you were there. And every time the church door opened, you better be there. There's a word for that. It's called legalism. I'm not saying that. I don't want that. But beloved, I think we've gone too far the other side that anything is an excuse for not gathering together to worship God, for not having the time on a daily basis to worship God. It's more about our convenience, that nothing else is in the way. 
than sacrifice. Our worship today, if Jesus came in and was teaching, is more about consumerism than commitment. You know, that church has more going on. They have a bigger youth group. They have a bigger worship team. They have, a, they have better, better whatever. They have better this. They have better that. I'm going over there. It's more about that than a commitment to the people that God has made me a part of. Our worship is more often about comfort, whatever form of comfort, than it is about a challenge. And too often our worship is more often about what I prefer than what God's word teaches. I had one thing that I thought, if Jesus were going to come in today into our churches, where might he become physical? My thought was he might knock our phones out of our hands. What does it say if I'm checking my emails while we're singing songs of worship to God? What does it say if I'm talking Google, checking Google News as we're seeking to know God? And how am I reflecting on Sunday what is really true of my life all week long? Worship is not about me. It's about God. We need to be certain that as his followers, that is what we demonstrate in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you teach us about worship in this passage. May we be those that make worship about you and not ourselves. For your honor and for your glory. Father, only those who know your son as their savior are able to worship you at all in a way that's pleasing to you. So Father, as always, we invite any who are not certain of that relationship to come and speak to someone here about how they might know for certain that they are your child. For the rest who know that, rest in that. May we be those that truly worship you in all that we do. For your glory and honor, and it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.